Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. Welcome to Disco Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson. I hope you all had a good break. It's good to be back in studio. Today we have a very special guest, Dr. Chrissy Sofianos, and he is a specialist plastic surgeon. Sounds very fancy. Chris and I did a lot of our studying together, and it's a pleasure to have him in studio. Welcome, Chris. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for coming. All right, so, I mean, plastic surgeon sounds very glamorous. And I know that, it, I mean, once you've been uh, through it and people hear about your training and what you do, gives a lot more meaning because I imagine most people associate plastic surgeons with just cosmetics and looking good. Yeah, I think that's the, the biggest misconception is that it's uh, mostly cosmetics. But at the end of the day, plastic surgeons do a lot of reconstruction and make a huge difference in a lot of cancer patients and patients with congenital issues. Um, the training isn't as glamorous as you make it out to be. Um, but worth it at the end, the, the fact that you can make such changes for patients is amazing. Okay, so tell us a bit about it. So you, when you, you finished medicine, what did you do afterwards? So I finished medicine, did uh, my internship at Baraguanath Hospital for two years, then did community service for one year, then started off in general surgery as a, as a registrar, did that for two years, and then applied to get into plastics, which was then another four years. After that, I did my exams in plastic surgery in South Africa and then went off to London for just over a year to do further training. I did the exams over in London and was exposed to to complex reconstruction and cosmetic surgery in London. Then I'm back now in South Africa and practicing at uh, Life Bedford Gardens and at Killingsfield Hospitals. Okay, amazing. All right, so... Um, let's speak about something that's, that uh, people maybe don't associate with plastic uh, surgeons. They'll go to their, usually their GP or their dermatologist, and maybe will end up at the plastic surgeons at the end. And we're in summer now. There's a lot of sun. People have just come back from holiday. And um, we often uh, are told to put on sun cream so to protect our skins. But uh, we don't know what the harmful effects are. So the different types of skin cancers that we can get, I know not all of them come from the sun, but what, what, from the sun, but uh, what, what is uh, skin cancer and where does it come from? So the evidence suggests that about 70% of those of us who are over 55 will develop some form of skin cancer. All cells in the body, including skin cells, repair and are replaced all the time to ensure the health of the tissue they form. When these processes go wrong in the skin cells, their growth can become uncontrolled and a collection of abnormal cells or a tumor can develop in part of the skin. This can range from an abnormal but non-cancerous benign tumor through precancerous sun damage all the way to skin cancer, which is malignant. Okay, so we've got uh, normal skin cells, and depending what they're exposed to or what they go through, they can get um, abnormal growth. What else does the skin do in the in the body. So it's the, the skin is the largest organ of the body and it's made up of three layers, the epidermis, the dermis and the subcutis. Most skin cancers develop from cells found in the epidermis which is the outer layer of the skin. Like you said, there are different types of skin cancers and they're divided into two main groups, non-melanoma and melanoma. The non-melanoma skin cancers are further subdivided into basal cell cancer and squamous cell carcinoma. Importantly, the basal cell cancers are the commonest skin cancers, and they sometimes are called a rodent ulcer. They're slow-growing, and they cause a local problem, and it's extremely uncom uncommon for them to spread to other parts of the body. Melanoma, on the other hand, is less common than basal cell or squamous cell carcinoma, but can be far more serious. 
More than 95% of them are shades of brown and develop in previously normal moles that change in 30% or begin as completely new moles in 70%, and catching these early is vital. Okay, so what are, what are the risk factors for having... Uh so risk, the, ma- the major risk is from ultraviolet radiation or light from the sun and sunbeds. The UV damages the genetic material in the skin cells or DNA leading to abnormal cell growth. And these abnormalities can increase over time, meaning that sun damage as a child or early adulthood can become apparent in later life. That's especially true for people with paler skin, which when exposed tends to go red rather than tan. Non-melanoma skin cancer seems to be associated with overall sun exposure through life, such as outdoor work, sports and hobbies. Darker skin people have lower skin cancer rates because the pigment in their skin protects their cells from UV to some extent, but they do st- still sometimes get skin cancers. Are they, and what other ca- you said that mainly sun, but what other chemicals or irritants can cause those skin cancers, or we, was it mainly just sun so? Exposure? So squamous cell ca- cancers can uh, happen in areas that are chronically irritated or exposed, areas that were previously burnt. Certain occupational exposures as well can cause skin cancers. There's a wide range of causes for skin cancers, and if you are worried about any sort of lesion, if you have a growth on the skin that regularly forms a crust or bleeds and does not heal over a six- to eight-week period, you should have it checked by your doctor. Okay, so crusting, bleeding, what other things, are, um, or non-healing, what other things would scare you? So if, if you've had a, a sort of skin lesion that's changing in size, changing in appearance, especially in your moles that are, are becoming indistinct, they're becoming darker or having different shades, you, you know, within their, their actual color, that would be something to worry about. If you have a new mole or one that's changing, you should visit your GP or your dermatologist and get it looked at. Um, melanomas can happen in new moles in 70%. They can happen anywhere on the skin, but they're most common in sun-exposed areas. Men have a higher chance of developing melanoma on the head, neck, and body, while women have a higher risk on the, uh, of developing melanoma on the legs. So uh, does a melanoma look different, I mean, if you saw it on the skin from a, a normal male? Yes, yeah, so a melanoma looks different from a number of, of points of view. So it could be darker or have various shades of, of brown. The border can be indistinct. It's usually larger than six millimeters, and it can crust or bleed like other skin cancers. And is it painful? It, it can be painful, but doesn't have to be painful. Okay, fine. So, okay, so you go to your GP, and they'll probably do a biopsy or send you to a dermatologist. What happens? What happens then? So the important thing is to diagnose the cancer. Once the cancer is, is diagnosed, we've got a number of options. The thing with skin cancer is that it needs to be treated. It doesn't heal on its own. And frequently, once we've confirmed with a biopsy, and we either take it away surgically or by other means that are available to dermatologists, such as creams, lasers, or in certain cases, radiotherapy. Okay, so but most of them need to be cut out. Is yeah, it, is most of them great? do need to cut out, and that's where plastic surgery comes in, in the fact that we need to reconstruct the area. You're taking away the skin and a normal margin of tissue around it that's leaving a hole or a defect that needs to be reconstructed. And plastic surgery is, is all about reconstructing it and giving it the appearance that it had before. Okay, so I mean, um, uh, other doctors might cut it out on a different part of the body, but I imagine if it's on a delicate area like the face or somewhere else on the body, I mean, you would take it and make it look like nothing's, uh, nothing's yeah, there's happened. Al- there's always scarring, but you try and prove it as much as possible, and that's that's the art of plastic surgery is trying to restore the normal to as close as possible. Okay, uh, last thing before an ad break, what about sun creams? Which so- so some sun safety advice, you should be using at least a sun factor 30 on sun-exposed areas and SPF 50 if you have a scar exposed. 
you need to make sure it's got good UVA protection and that you're reapplying it regularly following the guidance on the bottle. During the hottest, hottest part of the day, 11 a.m. to 3 p.m., you should be seeking shade. You should wear a T-shirt, hat, and sunglasses. All right. Well, very informative on skin cancer. We've got Dr. Chris Sofianos, plastic surgeon, and we'll be back with you right after the break. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson. We're talking to plastic surgeon Dr. Chris Sofianos. He is a plastic surgeon at uh, Bed- Bedford Gardens um, Hospital and Net Gillingsfield Hospital. If you've got any questions for him, you can SMS in 34519. You can send a telegram 0618951019. Or you can phone in on the studio 0101403020. So we've just been speaking about skin cancers, the risks involved, and how they're treated often by a plastic surgeon. Now let's move on to something that's more um, related to the cosmetic side. So, I mean, it's, it's quite controversial, but... Um, some people, well, not really, depends, but uh, maybe not not as controversial or uh, awkward to speak about, but uh, breast augmentation, sometimes it's for cosmetic reasons, sometimes it's for reconstructive reasons after breast cancer. Is it, um, what, first of all, what is bre- breast augmentation? So breast augmentation is enlargement of the breast. It's usually done by inserting an implant, usually silicone, beneath the breast to make it larger. It will enlarge breasts that have always been small, but can also be used to fill out breasts that used to be larger. An example of that would be breasts that have emptied out, perhaps following pregnancy. And um, following pregnancy, and what about post-breast um, cancer surgery? Yeah, so we'll talk about that a bit later with the breast cancer and reconstruction, but um, implants nowadays, there's, there's a lot of controversy, like you say, about implants and silicone implants themselves, which we can discuss a bit later whether they're safe or not. Okay, and, um, and so they are still, have they always been made out of silicone? Yeah, so they, the silicone shell has always been there, but we've gone through a number of generations of silicone implants. Now we're at the fourth generation of silicone implants. At one stage in America, they were outlawed and only saline-filled implants were used. What was the reason for that? The reason for that was this whole controversy about whether silicone is safe or not. And, you know, once they outlawed them, they did a number of studies that showed that actually the silicone is safe and that there's no increased risk of, of silicone implant illness in the greater scheme of things. Nowadays, there's, there's a unique entity called breast implant-associated lymphoma, which is making an increase now with certain types of implants which we are no, no longer using in my practice. Okay. So, I mean, is it a big thing? Is it a day procedure or, um, you know, when people think about it, is it so, a simple thing? Is, there, is it a high-risk procedure? So breast augmentation, it's, it's a very popular operation worldwide, and recently there's a popular myth that it's a minor procedure without complications. In reality, it might be done in a single day, but it is a major Operation, and you must ask the right questions of your plastic surgeon, make the right decision for you, and ensure you have enough time to recover properly after surgery. Breast augmentation itself is a lifetime commitment. It's essential that you're making the appropriate choice and understand all the implications of the surgery you're considering. In the future, you may, may need revision surgery as the years go by, and you need to be prepared for that personally, emotionally, and financially. In the greater scheme, nobody needs an urgent breast augmentation. Once you see your plastic surgeon, you should be offered a cooling-off period. In other words, some time to go home, think about the procedure, and make an informed decision. You should never be put under pressure to proceed, and you should walk away and look elsewhere if that's the case. Breast implants themselves are not a, a permanent a permanent operation. 
we generally say that after 10 years, you most probably will need them replaced. As you grow, as you get older, your, your breasts do sag, and that does give a different appearance to them, especially with an implant in place. So you do need to realize that you might have a breast augmentation now, but at, at a later stage, you will need some sort of revision. Okay. And uh, tell me, what's involved in the actual, in the actual operation? So we place an implant under the patient's breast tissue to enhance not only the size of the breast, but also the shape of it. We insert the implants usually with an incision under the breast at the crease, which over time doesn't become visible and, and heals quite well. But they can also be put via an incision around the nipple. The implants can be placed directly beneath the breast tissue or behind the breast and chest wall muscle. Your surgeon would be able to advise you which is appropriate for you. And uh, are there are there any medical? I mean, you said what's appropriate for you. Are there any um, like medical differences regarding your long term? If say a new mother wants to feed, yes. So breastfeeding itself is a, in in about twenty percent of people there is issues with breastfeeding. But realistically, we don't touch the breast tissue if we use the incision beneath the breast crease. We go underneath the breast tissue, and it shouldn't really affect breastfeeding. However, the problem with breastfeeding and after pregnancy, you'd rather wait a few months, wait for the breast to settle, and see the final result before augmenting them or before having any sort of breast surgery. Your breasts do change quite a lot after pregnancy and as you age, so it would be best to complete your family and then have breast augmentation surgery or to have it before even starting your family. Okay, so sometimes uh, um, it's not a choice, and unfortunately people do get breast cancer. And we have discussed previously on the show with the radiologist and with the general surgeon from their point of view what uh, um, to do for screening for breast cancer and how we manage breast cancer. When does a plastic surgeon get involved with the breast cancer? So again, a common misconception is that the plastic surgeon is, is involved only after the breast cancer surgery has been done by the general or breast surgeon. In most first world or developed countries, the plastic surgeon is involved at the very beginning of, of the whole breast cancer journey. Each and every patient is entitled to breast reconstruction. And before even the surgery is done, the, the plastic surgeon should be involved in making a plan for reconstruction. That reconstruction can be done at the same time as the breast cancer surgery. In some cases, delayed, so a few months after the breast cancer surgery, or some patients opt for no breast reconstruction at all. Okay, so do you ever diagnose breast cancer, or is that usually done by... So, by pla so plastic surgeons do do a lot of breast surgery. Like we said earlier, we do a lot of breast cosmetic surgery, and before we undertake any of those procedures, we do a comprehensive breast exam, and we send patients off for mammograms and breast ultrasounds to make sure that we're not missing any breast cancer before we do any cosmetic surgery to the breast. So you might find that, that plastic surgeons do diagnose breast cancer. However, we wouldn't be involved in actually removing the breast cancer, and we'd involve our, our breast cancer surgeon colleagues. Okay, so tell me, uh, how would... Uh, breast cancer be best diagnosed or what should women do to look out for it? So the most important thing about breast cancer diagnosis is that women should be doing their own self-breast exam at least once a month. About 40% of diagnosed breast cancers are detected by women who feel a bump, or who feel a lump and establishing a regular breast self-exam is very important. So there's three steps to a self-breast exam and the National Breast Cancer Society in America does suggest the following. It says that we should be or women should be doing it in the shower and with a pad of your three middle fingers, check the entire breast all the way into the armpit area, pressing down with light, medium, and then firm pressure. Both breasts should be checked every month for any lumps, thickenings, 
harder knots or any other breast changes that look abnormal to you. Then you'd move in front of a mirror and visually inspect your breasts with your arms at your sides. Then raise your arms above your head. You're looking for any changes in the shape of the breast, swelling, dimpling of the skin or changes in the nipples. You'd then next rest your palms on your hips and press firmly to flex your chest muscles. Your left and right breast will never exactly match. Everyone does have a slight difference, but any sort of dimpling, puckering or distinct changes between the two sides are important. You then follow up those two positions with lying down because the breast tissue spreads out evenly along the chest wall when you're lying down. You place a pillow under your right shoulder and then your right arm behind your head. Using your left hand, you use the pads of your fingers of your right breast, gently covering the entire breast area and armpit. Again, you'd use light, medium and firm pressure. Then squeeze the nipple and check for any discharge or lumps. And then you'd repeat this for the left side. Okay, we're going to take a short ad break. We speak to Dr. Christoph Johannes, plastic surgeon. This is Medical Monday, brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday on Chai FM. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson. We're speaking to plastic surgeon Dr. Chris Sofianos, who practices at uh, Life Bedford Gardens Hospital and at Killingsfield Hospital. If you want to get hold of him or ask any questions, you can SMS 34519, you can Telegram 0618951019, or you can phone the studio on 0101403020. We're busy speaking about different breast cancers and uh, the role of the plastic surgeon in breast cancers. So we just spoke about examining the breasts, checking for breast cancer. Um, once diagnosis has been made, usually what are the options? I know um, I've heard of a, a mastectomy. Why don't you explain to the patient, uh, the, the people out there what a mastectomy is? So mastectomy is, is the surgical removal of the entire breast, and that's usually done by the breast surgeon. And about 30% of women who have breast cancer require or choose to undergo mastectomy. The breast itself is positioned between the skin of the chest and the chest wall muscles, and the, these glands produce milk, which run via the ducts to the nipple. As the nipple is connected to the entire breast and cancer can involve the ducts, the nipple may need to be removed at the time of mastectomy. Not all patients that with breast cancer require a mastectomy. About 70% of them don't need a mastectomy, and the cancer itself can be removed what's, through what's called a wide local excision. For many patients, this will not have a significant effect on the shape of the breast. However, in some women, partial removal of the breast may affect the shape of the breast quite significantly. And if this is anticipated, your plastic surgeon would be able to discuss options of partial breast reconstruction with you. And uh, partial breast reconstruction versus full reconstruction, what's the difference? So breast reconstruction itself involves recreating the breast to match the remaining natural breast on the opposite side. Obviously, in cases where we're removing both breasts, it would we'd have to recreate sort of symmetrical breasts. Full breast reconstruction would be if the patient undergoes a mastectomy, the whole breast is removed, and then varying amounts of skin remain behind. We now have to recreate the volume of the breast, and the only way to recreate the volume would be to either use your own tissue or to use an implant. And the different types of breast reconstruction, if we use your own tissue, we'd be taking tissue from, let's say, the lower abdomen, as if you were doing a tummy tuck, from the buttocks or inner thighs. We then use a microscope to reconnect this tissue to the chest vessels and recreate a breast from natural breast tissue. A lot of patients do choose to get silicone implants because these are much quicker with less complications initially. Okay, so, I mean, that sounds quite complicated. Would all plastic surgeons know how to do these uh 
these operations to do reconstruction? So all plastic surgeons are trained to do both both autologous or natural breast reconstruction and implant-based reconstruction. However, autologous or flap-based reconstruction is quite a specialized area of plastic surgery. It needs quite considerable skill and training, and a lot of patients do super-specialize in that. My year in England was spent doing that exact thing, which involved using microscopes to reconnect blood vessels and using very fine sutures to do that. The procedures themselves do take quite long. They take about 8 to 10 hours for a single breast reconstruction. And you do need to have the adequate training to do that because if if there's any sort of technical issues with it, the reconstruction itself can be lost completely and we'd start from scratch. So what's the advantage of having um, your local tissue uh, uh, flap over having a silicone implant? So using your own natural or or flap tissue would mean that you wouldn't have a silicone implant. It would mean that the tissue itself would age with you. It would look and feel more natural. And chances are that you wouldn't need any sort of revision surgery much later on in life and to replace the implant itself. It does leave you with scars, however, in the area from which we take the tissue. So if we take the tissue from the tummy, you're left with a scar in the lower abdomen. However, the benefit of that is that we'd be able to take out the tissue as if we were performing a tummy tuck. So not only would you be getting a new breast, but you'd be getting a flat tummy at the end of the procedure. Okay, so when would you decide to do the reconstruction at the procedure or later? So the reconstruction of the breast can be immediate or delayed, and that decision is taken in conjunction with not only the breast surgeon but the medical and radiation oncologist. The stages where we do the reconstruction immediately would be in the case of, let's say, a partial breast reconstruction. In cases where we don't anticipate the patient needing radiation therapy, radiation therapy is usually needed in more severe breast cancers, in breast cancers that have spread to, let's say, the chest wall or the lymph nodes. In these cases, it would be more ideal to wait for that treatment to finish. We'd be able to put an expander, which is a a silicone implant, which sits there temporarily to keep the space open. And once the treatment is completed, we'd come back and then reconstruct the breast once we're sure that the cancer is completely gone. Okay, so that why why can't you just leave that expander in? So the expander itself is filled with saline, and the expander won't last a lifetime. Some patients do use or do leave the expanders in and come back to us 10 or 20 years later once it's no longer looking the same because the saline has come out because it's ruptured. The expander wood is a temporary thing keeps the space open, and we'd come back and put a silicone implant or a flap to take up that space. Okay. I know, I mean, a long time ago, maybe 50 years ago, that um, a lot of people weren't even offered reconstruction, and mastectomies were quite radical and disfiguring. Uh, do women still choose not to have a reconstruction at the moment? So some patients do choose not to have the breast reconstructed at all. Many women feel radically changed by their cancer experience, and some feel that a flat chest is an apt acknowledgement and expression of their post-cancer persona. Others are satisfied with wearing a prosthetic breast in their bra rather than have to undergo more surgery. The important thing is that patients are offered a choice. Like you say, 20, 30, 40 years ago, patients weren't offered breast reconstruction. Now in America, it is law that patients have to be offered breast reconstruction at the initial consultation and that women shouldn't have to live without a breast, be it using an external prosthesis or having it reconstructed surgically. What's it like in South Africa? I mean, I know it's not law, but uh, uh, all women, I imagine, are offered in private and government, you know, are they offered reconstruction? In in government, unfortunately, the implants themselves aren't aren't available on the government service. However, there are some breast cancer foundations that do sponsor the implants. In government, 
again, we're constrained by time limits for surgery, so we can't be doing long, complicated reconstructions initially. So most of the time, patients would have a mastectomy or a lumpectomy or a, or a partial mastectomy, have that heal up, and then come at a later stage to the plastic surgeon for a reconstruction. I found that in that in my time in state, a lot of patients don't actually come back for the reconstruction, and they're actually quite happy with that. Other options would be to not reconstruct that breast, but to reduce the size of the other breast to match it. Again, it's up to the patients, and although implants aren't available in state, partial reconstructions and other options are available. Okay, what are, and what's the recovery like of breast reconstruction? So most women find, uh, or experience shows that most women find that breast reconstruction offers many positive psychological benefits. So it's not just improving the way they look externally, but they get an improved quality of life, improved body image, confidence, self-esteem, and a restored sense of wholeness and femininity. However, it's important to know that the personal impact of the surgery varies from one woman to another, and it isn't a complete remedy for the distress associated with a diagnosis of breast cancer and the subsequent treatment. Okay, and um, scarring? So as with any procedure, there is scarring. Like I said earlier, if we're using your own tissue, there's more scars. However, you get the benefit of having a natural breast that ages with you. The position and size of scars after breast reconstruction depend entirely on the technique used. The implant techniques used shorter scars confined only to one breast, and flap techniques have scars on the back or the tummy. All scars in any part of the body can be expected to be lumpy at first. They'll go through a period of being pink, red, and raised, and usually these gradually become flat and pale. This, this process itself can take up to two years to happen. Okay, so you spoke earlier about reducing the size of one breast to match the other breast. Um, tell me about breast reduction. So a lot of patients are, or a lot of patients do present with very large breasts and, and request breast reduction. Um, large breasts or macromastias, it's called, can cause a number of, of chronic symptoms. It can be back pain. They can be grooving because of, of a bra and the heavy breasts. It can cause self-esteem issues. There's lots of studies that show that the quality of life with very large breasts is comparable to chronic diseases such as diabetes. The issue in South Africa is that a lot of medical aids don't cover breast reduction surgery and it's left up to the patient to to fund or to find money to have the breast reduction surgery, even if there are valid um, symptoms that would warrant breast reduction. The way that medical aids see it is that breast reduction itself would be is an expensive procedure that would be preventing them from offering other non-cosmetic um, procedures or techniques to other patients. Um, breast reduction, again, is is a big procedure. You'd be staying one night in hospital, but the relief from symptoms can be immense. So what, what actually do you do in the procedure? So in the procedure itself, we, we reduce the size of the breast. The problem is that by reducing the size of the breast, we're also reducing the blood supply to the breast. The nipple and the areola on the breast are dependent on the blood supply from beneath. So in a breast reduction, we're removing tissue, but also we're leaving tissue behind to supply blood or, or vascularity to the nipple and areola. What that means typically is that we're limited in the size of the breast that we can reduce. So if a patient comes in with, let's say, double D, we wouldn't be able to get them to a size A, for example, because then their nipple would not have enough blood supply and it would look abnormal. So, again, that would be a discussion that you'd have with your plastic surgeon. They'd take measurements, and they'd be able to tell you what's achievable. 
Is it a big operation? It, it takes about two to three hours. It, there's a lot of, of uh, molding or suturing that takes place to give you a nice contour to the breast. We're reducing the breast tissue. We're reducing the skin. And you will be left with, with what's called an anchor scar. So that's a scar coming down the breast and beneath the breast. However, this isn't an issue for most patients because of the relief they get. Plus, the contour itself is looks much better in a bra or in a bikini. Okay, is it a painful operation? We do try a number of techniques to prevent or to reduce pain. We use local anesthetic in the procedure itself. Although you're asleep, we do give the local anesthetic, so when you wake up, it's relatively painless. However, as with any procedure, there is pain and it is unavoidable. Uh, most patients that I do operate on do report a mild discomfort for a few days that does settle after a week. And are there, are there bad complications? So there can be bad complications from the point of view that you are left with, with a scar on the breast and beneath the breast that might not heal properly. In certain individuals, scars don't heal well, and those would be more visible. However, we do have techniques to reduce that. Again, like I said, the nipple is dependent on blood supply from beneath the breast, and that could be compromised even if we leave enough breast tissue behind. Most times we do leave drains in for a few days, which drain excess fluid or blood that could collect. And if that does collect in excess, we might need to go back to theater or, or back to an operation and remove any sort of excess blood that collects. Okay. Um, speaking about the nipple, I forgot to ask when we were speaking about breast reconstruction. What can you do if you do a mastectomy or remove the breast? How can you reconstruct the nipple? So a mastectomy, there's different types of mastectomy. Like I spoke, alluded to earlier, there can be skin-sparing mastectomy where the nipple would be taken away but skin would remain behind. There's also nipple-sparing mastectomy where a nipple would remain. In the cases where we do remove the nipple, which is in the majority of cases, the nipple can be reconstructed with a number of techniques. We can share the nipple from the opposite breast. If a patient has a large nipple on, let's say, the non-operated side, we can take a piece of this and transplant it on the breast that was reconstructed. We can also use local tissue and create a, a nipple, although it can be flat. And a lot of patients opt for medical tattooing. So this isn't the tattooing that you get at your local tattoo artist, but specific individuals that are trained in medical tattooing, they'd be able to give a 3D look to the nipple that although it is flat, looking at the patient from a distance, it looks like they have a 3D nipple. And can you can you create an elevated nipple though on that side? Yes, you can. So you can create it using local tissue, although it will never be as tall as a normal nipple, for example. You can get a, a nipple from local tissue that's a few millimeters high. But most patients are happy with that, and most patients get a combination. Uh, I'd, I'll make a nipple using local tissue, and then I'd send them through to the medical tattooist who'd create the areola around it in a 3D color to match the opposite breast. Okay, but obviously these all depend where the cancer is in the breast. Yes, yeah, so if, if the cancer itself is behind the nipple, if the nipple itself is involved or retracted or there's a nipple discharge, a lot of the times the nipple would have to go. In, in about 1% of cases that we do leave the nipple behind, there still can be cancer in the nipple. Most patients opt to have the nipple removed completely because we do have options to reconstruct it and that a 1% risk is unacceptable for most patients. Okay. Very good. Okay, so we've just spoken about breast reductions and uh, mastectomies. Should we speak about a different aspect of uh, plastic surgery, maybe talk about Botox and fillers? So nowadays, I mean, plastic surgery we did allude to earlier isn't about reconstruction only. It's about cosmetic appearance and cosmetic techniques. And those cosmetic techniques aren't only surgery, but they can be Botox and fillers, which is non-surgical facial rejuvenation. And it is available at, at at many doctors, at your dentist, at your GP, 
And they also do a lot of Botox and fillers, and a lot of doctors are very well trained in that. Plastic surgeons do have the advantage of having studied in-depth facial anatomy. They do perform surgical procedures on the area, so they've got a good idea of where they should be injecting Botox and fillers. Botox is a powerful chemical agent. It's a prescription-only medicine that you can only give to a patient after a face-to-face consultation. So if in in South Africa you shouldn't be getting injections from a non-trained individual, there's five types of Botox, and we use type A, and it should only be administered after careful medical examination of the patient. So the Botox, does it? what does it actually do? Does it paralyze the muscles? or? Yes, yeah, so it paralyzes the skeletal muscles. So it acts at what's called the neuromuscular junction, and it prevents those muscles from contracting. So there's benefits to that both from a cosmetic point of view and from a functional point of view. From a functional point of view, we can use it to control muscle spasms, severe pain. Excessive sweatiness in the armpits or the hands can be treated with Botox. Again, severe migraines can also be treated with Botox. From the cosmetic point of view, we can treat facial lines with Botox if these aren't very severe. So what we do is we give Botox into the muscles. These muscles relax, and without contracting anymore, those facial lines would be reduced. What are the risks of having Botox? So there's a number of risks of having Botox, especially in the in the area around the eyes or the forehead. If too much Botox is given or if it spreads to the upper eyelid, that upper eyelid itself can become paralyzed. Botox itself doesn't last for longer than three to six months, so this would be a temporary thing. Immediately after injection, you can get headaches, you can get infection in the area, and it can give you a bit of discomfort, although that's uncommon. And uh, besides uh, those risks, are there any risks, like permanent risks? You said how long? How does it, only, does it usually last for? So Botox itself usually lasts for three to six months. Um, you'd need a top-up, although some studies show that continued use of Botox reduces the need for it. So a lot of patients come in, they get a bit of Botox, and they see the effect that that does. They'll come back in three to six months for a top-up or to consider surgical procedures. And what happens if it goes if it goes wrong or is injected in the wrong place? Is there any way to get rid of it? So you just no, have to wait. So you just have to wait. There are certain certain medications that you can give. So for example, if that upper eyelid does drop because the Botox has spread to it, you can use eye drops that that act to raise it a few millimeters, although it doesn't treat it. Botox itself is temporary, but there's not much that you can do for those three to six months. It's important, especially after having Botox from any sort of health practitioner, that you don't engage in exercise, that you don't go to saunas, that you shouldn't be traveling the same day as well because that can cause spread of the Botox. I've had a patient as well who went for a massage after Botox, which caused spread of the Botox to both upper eyelids, which is obviously not ideal. Okay, so um, we're talking about Botox uh, for cosmetic uses on the face. Can you use it anywhere else in the body cosmetically? So you can use it in, in let's say, the sweat gland so that you could tell us more about uh, using Botox in or in salivary glands. So, yeah, we use it as ENTs using the salivary glands, which often in children with cerebral palsy or uh, people have excess salivation, you almost paralyze those glands that they produce um, less saliva. We also use it in the vocal cords um, to stop certain... Spasms, you can also use it for grounding of uh, teeth injected into the masseter muscle, which um, reduces the strength which you uh, grind teeth with. Have you, have you had much experience using it in um, children with, um, or people with uh, contractors or post-stroke? 
Yeah, so it, yeah, I do have quite a lot of experience with that. We did a lot of cerebral palsy, Botox injections, and facial nerve paralysis, Botox injections in the UK. So the issue with, let's say, facial nerve paralysis is that the one side is contracting while the other side is not contracting in, let's say, a Bell's palsy. So we give Botox to symmetrize or to make the two parts of the face look similar. Again, this is not permanent, and patients would have to come in every three to six months for that. A lot of patients do opt to have surgical procedures to balance out or symmetrize the face if they have a facial palsy. In patients with, let's say, cerebral palsy patients, we do use it if they have severe muscle spasms, if they have severe contractions to improve that. Okay, we're going to take a short break. We're speaking to Dr. Christophianos. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Disco Medical Monday. We're in the final quarter of the show. We're speaking to plastic surgeon Dr. Christoph Janos. If you've got any questions for him, SMS in on 34519. You can se- uh, send a telegram 0618951019 and you can call in our studio on 0101403020. We're speaking about uh, Botox for cosmetic users and for medical uses. What about fillers? What are fillers? So fillers are... Uh are what's called hyaluronic acid. So hyaluronic acid is present in all your cells normally. And what they've done is they've, they've taken it from, from other animals and from other plant-based sources and they've created what's called a filler, which is this viscous gel that can be injected into the skin. The good thing about filler is again, it's, it's not, it can be permanent. However, hyaluronic acid fillers are not permanent. They're temporary, which is the way that most aesthetic practitioners or plastic surgeons are going these days. We're using temporary or hyaluronic acid fillers to improve certain areas of the face. So we can inject it into deep lines. We can inject it to to accentuate certain areas of the face. We can even inject it, let's say, into the chin in, in patients that, that have a recessed chin. We can define the jaw and we can do quite a number of things with it. Are any risks associated with fillers? So the risks with fillers are mostly with your permanent types of fillers. As with any sort of sort of injection into the body, it does react to it. If it's a permanent type of filler, it's usually made from chemicals that aren't absorbable and your body can create what's called a granuloma or it can create tissue around this filler which is which you can feel as a lump. It can look abnormal. Again, you can get small areas of lumpiness that don't feel normal and don't look normal if you use permanent fillers. Hyaluronic acid, the good thing about it is, like I said, it's temporary, but also we have a, a medication that we can inject which will reverse it if there is a problem. Okay, and uh, besides uh, using it for cosmetic um, purposes, are there any other medical purposes that you use fillers for? So other medical purposes for fillers are, for example, in HIV-positive patients that have problems with with fat deposition. If they have a, a concavity or a depression in you know on any part of their face, we can use filler to improve that. Filler can give a long-lasting, long-lasting um, or or permanent approach in these patients, and those would be the only patients that are considered permanent filler in. A lot of these HIV-positive patients are bothered quite a lot by um, these recesses or this lack of fat in certain areas, and fillers can definitely improve that. Okay, talking about fat, um, why can't yeah, I know I know about liposuction and tummy tucks. Why can't you just cut off the whole big piece of fat in the stomach? Why do you have to? First of all, what is liposuction? What can you do uh, for excess abdominal fat? 
Okay, so we've got some attacks. So liposuction itself is is where you use, you make a small incision and then you use these pipes or cannulas, connect them to a suction and through a certain technique that we taught as plastic surgeons, aspirate or suck out that fat. The problem with liposuction in, let's say, the abdomen is that if you have a lot of excess skin, the liposuction itself will not treat the excess skin. So in a lot of cases, we can or do liposuction for the abdomen, let it settle, and then do a tummy tuck afterwards to remove the excess skin. We can combine liposuction with a tummy tuck at the same time in certain situations. Or we can do liposuction for other areas such as the thighs, the arms, and if the excess abdominal fat is not that severe or if there's not a lot of excess skin we can lipo do liposuction alone for the abdomen is it painful liposuction so liposuction is is itself is not painful it can be done under sedation it can be done um, under regional anesthesia by injecting local anesthetic even if we do it with a patient asleep again we inject local anesthetic and when the patient wakes up there's not a lot of pain the incisions or the cuts that we make for it are multiple two to three millimeter cuts that do heal quite quickly the thing about liposuction is that it takes about three to six months to see the final effects because the body area itself is quite swollen and can be edematous. Again, there can be bruising of the area itself. So what do you do in an actual tummy tuck? Is so a tummy tuck is a procedure where we remove the excess abdominal fat and skin at the same time. We make a cut from one end of the hip bone to the other. We then lift up the lower abdominal tissue. We remove the bottom part that is an excess we make a new hole for the belly button and we stitch it closed. At the same time, we can tighten the muscles or your six-pack. A lot of ladies do have problems with that in after pregnancy. The, their six-pack muscles do separate and they get what's called a rectus divarication. And the tummy tuck gives us the ability or the access to fix those muscles. So we go in, we fix the muscles, we do a bit of liposuction, we remove the excess skin and then we stitch it closed. And how much fat can you take with, uh, is there a limit to how much fat you can take off? So, so the limit for liposuction, you can take about three liters of fat after which it becomes unsafe. You'd have to be admitted to hospital overnight for any liposuction over three liters. I don't know any plastic surgeon that wouldn't admit a patient if they took more than three liters. Wow, wow what's the concern? The problem is that with when you're doing the liposuction, you're injecting local anesthetic, you're taking away the fat, and there can be severe fluid shifts. We'd have to monitor that you're getting enough hydration, that you're producing enough urine, and you're not not at risk of any sort of kidney damage by excessively removing so much fat. With tummy tucks, the risks of it is poor healing. The the belly button itself could also not have adequate blood supply. But again, these risks are at around two to five percent. And when you do the actual tummy tuck, um, do you just simply cut out the piece of fat underneath and and measure it, or is there a certain amount so, you can take? So out? the tummy tuck, there's no the the limiting factor for the tummy tuck is being able to close the wound. So we what we do is we flex the bed of the patient to get the wound closer to the one end of the wound closer to the other allowing us to take more tissue again we wouldn't want to take too much tissue such that we can't close the wound and you're left with a massive wound at the bottom of the tummy there's no true kilogram limit for for tummy tucks however i've I've removed about four kilograms just from the front and another four kilograms from the back in what's called a buttock lift so you can you you can extend the tummy tuck all the way around and do a circumferential body lift. So you're taking the tissue at the front, the sides, and the back, and that's usually for patients that have massive weight loss after, let's say, bariatric surgery. And um, um, what's the recovery like? So recovery after after tummy tuck is usually at, at about 10 days. Um, 
you'd be in hospital for at least one or two nights. You'd have um, drains coming out of the area. And typically, I'd say that you'd be off work for 10 days to 14 days. However, the recovery itself with light work would be about a month. And, uh, I mean, imagine it's painful and you're kind of arched over forward. And So, again, it's, it's more discomfort. So I use certain techniques that I was taught overseas to reduce the pain after surgery. However, you you not comfortable because you sort of flexed in that position for a few days and then you slowly straighten up. A lot of patients that, are, that I've done it for actually report that that discomfort goes away after 48 to 72 hours. And so what are you waiting for, for the skin to stretch? Yeah, for, for the skin to stretch because we, we close the skin a bit tightly so it doesn't loosen up at a later stage. So you're waiting for it to, to stretch and for you to straighten out. Um, you, you know, after tummy tuck, you're the only person who can feel how much skin can stretch. So you'd be able to control that and see how long it would take you to stand upright again. And is it a purely cosmetic procedure? You said after weight loss surgery, after bariatric surgery, some people might need to do it for excess skin. Does medical aid pay for it? Or? So unfortunately, it doesn't pay for it if it's if it's just excess skin and fat. With regards to to after bariatric surgery, it's considered on a case by case basis. So if we're doing any sort of what's called body contouring surgery after bariatric surgery, it would have to be after at least a year of weight loss on the bariatric surgery. We'd have to do it as a team with a bariatric surgeon. They'd have to tell us that they're happy with the weight loss. You don't want to do any sort of cosmetic or body contouring procedures if the patient is still losing weight. So 12 to 18 months after bariatric surgery, we'd start considering body contouring procedure. Okay, very good. We're speaking to plastic surgeon Dr. Chris Sofianos, and uh, we're going to ask, how do we get hold of you? So you can get hold of me on my website at www.cs.surgery. You can phone my office at 010-500-5151. My personal email address is mail at cs.surgery, or you can SMS 060, sorry, 070-060-2751. And I'm always happy to answer any questions that you may have. Okay, so let's repeat that. It's mail at cs.surgery or www.cs.surgery, and you're at Life Bedford Gardens Hospital and at Kellingsfield Hospital. Yeah. Okay, and if uh, patients have any questions, you can email, you can go to the website, you can make an appointment to see Dr. Sofianos. Thank you very much for joining us today on Dischem Medical Monday. We'll see you next week.